on today's episode, it's now 7.06. We have exactly one hour and 30 minutes to think about why we are here, to ponder the brilliance of this song. We're tackling Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds from the 1985 movie The Breakfast Club. Don't you forget about me. Don't, 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 don't. Woo, let's start the pod. Hello and welcome to The Song Will Go On, the podcast inspired by the songs, inspired by the motion pictures. I'm Paolo Grassini, and today, whoo, we have a heavy hitter, a movie classic, if you will. It's the 80s teen anthem, Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. From the 1985 John Hughes classic teen movie, The Breakfast Club. Joining us today, our co-host, you want to know what she did to get on this spot? I mean, well, everything. But for, for the sake of the movie quote, <laughs> she did nothing. She had nothing better to do. It's Sofia Matano. What's up, Sophie? <laughs> There's nothing I could have better to do than be on this podcast. I love it. Don't yeah. do any like weird sandwich crunch noises while making the pod. The mic really picks that up. So I'll try. I'll try. Yeah. Our guest today, he's one-fifth of Deep Cuts Lost and Found, which is a podcast where a group of high school friends, but now adults, go year by year recommending yes. <laughs> some hidden gems in music. It's Bill Federico. What's up, Bill? Hey, great to see you guys. It's great to be here. Thanks. I always worried with our podcast when we said we were high school friends that people would think we were five high schoolers. <laughs> when I was writing that, I was like, like, it's not that age is important, but I feel like I have to say that they are adults because that's a thing. Right. Like they're not some. Right. We are not. We are not teens. Yeah. Bill, I, I do want to talk oh, a no. little about your podcast, Deep Cuts, which People listening, sure. it's also a Gigawatts podcast, mm -hmm. a sister podcast from the yes, Gigawatts Productions. Mm -hmm. So we just wrapped season two. How did that go? I mean, did. What, what years did you guys cover? It was great. Where did we start? We started in the 90s and made our way up to 2005, but we did a bunch of theme shows. Mm -hmm. And our last uh, show, I think our 40th episode was Album Closers, which uh, seemed like a good way, an apropos way of, of tying things up. And uh, we're excited to come back for season three. I think you guys did soundtrack too, we right? Did, we did do one about soundtracks. We, we called that At The Movies. And uh, that that was a lot of fun. That that inspired a lot of uh, great ideas. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we did it again, if we uh, so. revisited soundtracks. Because that, mm -hmm. you know, Tom obviously heavily involved in movies and films and all of us, big, you know, Big, big fans. So, uh, you know, it's just an easy topic for us to dive right into. And I'm sure we have a thousand other ideas of, of great songs we could talk about. But it was a lot of fun. And you're, you did a great job jumping in on the show and dealing with us nitwits. And mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we had a great time. This comes full circle because often, like, our guests pick the songs. But for this one, I specifically reach out to you because mm -hmm. I thought you would be a great fit. And not just because... The 80s is your generation, if I'm not mistaken, right? No, no, absolutely right. 
But also, one of the things I said when I first met you on Deep Cuts, it's you guys made me discover Simple Minds. You guys played uh, a Simple Minds song. And I mostly knew Simple Minds from Breakfast Club. So I was like, wow, what is this? So I was just, man, this is full mm -hmm. circle. But I want to ask you, why did you, why did you agree? Why did you also think, ah, oh, yeah, this is, this is the one? Like you, a lot of people discovered Simple Minds through Don't You Forget About Me. For me and some of my friends, like Rich especially, we, you know, Simple Minds was kind of our, you know, best kept secret prior to 1985. They were not a hit here in the US. You know, I think we probably thought we were kind of cool because we were listening to them in the early 80s. Mm. Uh, and we loved the band. And so it was a little weird when they got discovered by everyone and became popular. You know, all of a sudden, our little niche, you know, was known by everyone. And mm -hmm. so we had somewhat mixed feelings about it. I was really happy for the band to get exposure and to be known and whatnot, but also a little sad that, you know, my, 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 my little thing that I was a little possessive about, all of a sudden the world, you know, knew about them. I mean, a year before, if I was wearing my Simple Minds pin on like my denim jacket at high school, people would be like, who's that? Simple Minds? What is that? That's stupid. You know, <laughs> very uncool. And all of a sudden it became this huge phenomenon. So um, it was exciting, but also, you know, like I said, a little ambivalent about it when they became so big. Well, if I was a high schooler in the 80s, I wish that I would be on the Simple Minds before they were a hit. I got to <laughs> say that, that those are some, some cool points. <laughs> My high school music record was not as cool as that, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, all right. We have a lot to talk about. But before we get the show rolling, hey, so let's do some important reminders. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're so excited that we're in our second season. The song will go on is going strong. And uh, if you've been enjoying the season and want to show us some love, please consider checking out our Patreon our patrons get access to special needle drop episodes. We have curated monthly playlists on there inspired by our research and what we're currently listening to. And you get an invite to our Discord server and the chance to submit a question to our answerable question segment each episode. So uh, check us out at patreon.com slash the song will go on. Yeah, who know? Maybe one of those playlists that we come up with contains one of a Simple Minds in the Future, a hidden gem that I'm we're pretty just sure. like discovering. Yeah. <laughs> Before we talk about the song, it's tradition here and the song will go on. We have to talk about... Alive, it's alive, yes. It's, <laughs> it's Creator. We wouldn't have a song without the movie. So, Self, why don't you do your thing and just set up the movie for us? Can do. Okay. The Breakfast Club is a 1985 teen coming-of-age comedy drama film written and directed by John Hughes. It stars Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. The film follows an unlikely group of high school students, each from different social circles, who are forced together in Saturday detention. Their assignment for the day is to write an essay about who they think they are and reflect on what they've done to get in detention. Through their adventures that day, they come to learn more about themselves and each other than they anticipated. Today, John Hughes is a household name as a director, but that wasn't the case in 1982 when Hughes had first written The Breakfast Club. Before then, he had written for the National Lampoon magazine before getting his first screenwriting credit for National Lampoon's Class Reunion. He opted for a limited budget of $1 million for The Breakfast Club and devised a story that would be a single location shoot to minimize risks for investors and hopefully get the movie made. When production stalled, he was worried there wasn't enough commercial appeal for this movie. He wrote 16 Candles with Molly Ringwald in mind. He actually kept her headshot uh, available while writing. I remember hearing something about John Hughes and how fast he wrote. Yes, he, 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 he literally, was speedy. Yeah, he... 
someone mentioned an actor an interview I saw that he would write pages after sh a full day of shooting in a movie for the next movie he was already working. So hearing what you just said, it's not surprising that he was like, oh, I'll just write another one. You know, I, it, I'm listening to that be like, I, I just wrote a movie. How do you, how can I come up with another? He was just like, I'll just like. Do no, he's one. just going to bang him out for yeah. sure. I think he wrote 16 Candles, Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller all within like a really short period of time. No, I was going to say before this, I believe he did Mr. Mom and Vacation. That's right. Yeah, he did. I think he wrote both of those. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. That's a good question. Which with very funny. With John Hughes, it's like he also has so much writing, writing credits that you kind of think, mm -hmm. was he more of a writer than a director. He was both. He was both. He Def was one yeah. of those like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So principal photography started three months before 16 Candles premiered in theaters. So already b before his first movie's out, he's already thinking about Breakfast Club again. The cast had three weeks to rehearse and then the movie was shot in sequence in 32 days. The film premiered in February 1985 and debuted number three behind Beverly Hills Cop and Witness. <laughs> It grossed 45.8 million domestically and 51.5 million internationally, so that's not bad off of that $1 million budget. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four Roger. stars. Yeah, our boy Roger. All, we always got to check what Roger Ooh. says. Uh, he praised the performances. <laughs> <laughs> he noted the story was, quote, more or less predictable, but didn't need earth-shaking revelations. It's about kids who grow willing to talk to one another, and it has a surprisingly good ear for the way they speak. The New York Times and Variety were less positive, with James Harwood from Variety saying the movie will probably pass as deeply profound among today's teenage audience, meaning the youngsters in the film spend most of their time talking to each other instead of dancing, dropping their drawers, and throwing food. This, on the other hand, should not suggest they have anything intelligent to say. <laughs> Yikes. If this, uh, if this is That's his opinion smart. of teens, maybe this critic shouldn't be tasked with reviewing teen movies. Someone, but okay. was, someone was bitter about aging. Someone was mad at their son that day and had to take it out. Uh, the film elevated was this the cast. Richard Vernon posing as a movie critic? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the film elevated the cast's careers and they became known as the Brat Pack, along with the cast of St. Elmo's Fire, which was another coming of age film and has a great movie song that we need to cover eventually oh yeah remember that trip we took to new york where we just ups became obsessed yeah. with that song from elmo's fire yeah because we heard it in some mac and cheese that's right yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah absolutely as time passed the movie has achieved cult status it's considered a quintessential 80s film and has graced the list of best movies ever by the likes of empire and the new york times so i guess the latter came around eventually <laughs> Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the significance of the movie's iconic soundtrack, but we'll get there soon. Let's talk about the movie. Yes, let's do so. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I am dying to know about yeah. your relationship with this movie. What's, you know, I, I know you show well, me a Breakfast Club puzzle poster just before we were coming on the air. <laughs> yes. So I'm I, guessing I have a you like Club this. Puzzle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess I'm going to... Was it? Were either of you even born in '85? <laughs> I was. I, mean, I was a teenager in '85. Okay. okay. I I saw this in the theaters, so mm. um, I think I'm I think I'm the only one on the podcast who can say that. And I think I, I think it was a double feature with Tough Turf. Mm, and Tough okay. Turf was a movie with James Spader. That was like James Spader's debut, and Downey Jr. was in that as well, and had a good soundtrack. Had uh, Jim Carroll band and whatnot. So an amazing double feature, but I wasn't 17 yet. I think I went with my buddy Nash, who's also on Deep Cuts Lost and Found, and we 
the way you'd get into a rated R movie at the time was you'd buy tickets for something yep. else. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then mm-hmm. go to the bath. Then you go to the bathroom and then you'd have to sneak into the theater I, while the usher wasn't right? looking. Man, I saw some stinkers because that trick didn't work. Like I bought I bought the, <laughs> the ticket for the crappy movie and then it didn't work. And mm-hmm. then I had to and you go. Got I stuck with the crappy movie. I saw a movie called, uh, which actually I, I love, Kong Pao Entered the Fist like that. <laughs> I saw Small Soldiers like that. Oh, yeah. A classic. And, but check this out. I also sneaked into a premiere of There's Something I'll Marry. Mm. We were, we bought, oh, we that's bought, a great one. we bought, like you said, a ticket and we're walking down the aisle. And then we mm-hmm. saw on the LED line above that says like the name, the scrolling. We said, there's something I'll marry. And we're like, hold on a minute. There's no poster. Like, this. what is this? And we snuck in and they were handling like cham- like champagnes and plastic cups and everything. We were just like, hope no one catches it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm there with you. Sorry. That's just, those, that's my youth too, just sneaking into movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, that's what we had to do to sneak in. I knew one, I knew one kid who had a fake ID that made him 17 <laughs> so he could go to movies. But I loved the movie. I loved it when I saw it the first time. And I've seen it countless times since. I mean, it was on cable a bunch. We used to watch it on that, and and I rewatched it for this this um, for this podcast, of course. And uh, it had been a little while, but it I think it still holds up. I mean, there's some parts that I you know not crazy about it, uh, but uh, for the most part, yeah, it's part of my youth, and I still love it. So one of the things I would love to ask you is, what did you connect it with at the time? Because Rewatching it, I was kind of really surprised how I didn't remember this movie was so slow, if that's a word, but it's kind of like a therapy right. session. It's for almost teenagers. a play. You know, yes. like, and, and if yeah. you compare this to another 1985 movie, my favorite movie of all time, Back to the Future, like this doesn't have any spectacle, mm-hmm. any big set pieces. I mean, no. it, try, it tries to, with music, to move things along. It speaks to the power of the emotions of the characters that's going on throughout the film, but. Um, I, I guess this leads back to my question for you. It's like, what did you connect at the time? Was sure. it was it a emotional connection to what was happening on the film? Was it, oh man, their outfits, the style, they look so cool. Was it the music? <laughs> well, sure. I liked uh, Bender's multiple layers, the, uh, yeah. the top coat, the jean jacket, the flannel shirt, the, can, can, <laughs> the undershirt. With, which as a Puerto Rican island, I can only admire from afar. I could never pull off. <laughs> <laughs> too hot could never do layers on. but i i think yeah t- definitely tapped into teen emotions i mean at the time i was 16 or 15 um you know and there's a lot of uncertainty and angst at that time and you know issues with friendships you know what's what's real what's not real you know clicks and do you fit in do you not fit in and the movie took teens seriously it wasn't dismissive of teens emotions mm-hmm. um it's very dismissive of adults which at the That's time sure. you know, I thought was cool. I mean, now now I probably side with Vernon and Carl um, in the pa- in the parents of these kids more than I do the kids. But at the time, yeah, I identified with the kids. Even even though you know I don't know that I fit into one of the five groups exactly, but you know you could identify with each of them in some way. You know, Pedro Pascal, the actor, mm-hmm. he grew up in uh, Chile, and he said that uh, his father would not let him go to Breakfast Club. Because it was so critical and dismissive and disrespectful of parents. <laughs> oh. He was allowed to go to see First Blood. He, he can go see, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or a right. Rambo movie. 
but he could not go to see Breakfast Club. And imagine Pedro was like, you're proving the movie's point. <laughs> you're being such an authority. Exactly. Like, yeah. that's exactly. Um, right. So, uh, right. I want to get to you. Um, you are the youngest among us three. I am. So, I am curious, uh, what is your connection to Breakfast Club? I saw this either eighth grade or freshman year of high school. And I think that this was, this is my John Hughes movie. You know, this is the one that I'm most familiar with that I've seen the most and can relate most to. Uh, while like the Ferris Bueller's and stuff is fun, I cannot relate to Ferris Bueller Sophie in any way, shape, or form. Sophie never missed a date of school, so she cannot relate to that. <laughs> that uh, is a horror movie for her. Uh, <laughs> no, Paolo, I will let you know, I actually cut class quite a bit. You were the bit. Cameron? <laughs> I cut, I was the Cameron for sure. I have the anxiety issues to, to prove it, mm -hmm. but I, I did cut class quite a bit. <laughs> However, it was only when I'd like done my homework and was like, I'm good. I'll get an A anyway. But yeah, so this is the movie <laughs> that I related most to. Um, when I first started writing, uh, I wrote plays and it, to what Bill said, I loved that this movie was in a single location it's it's completely character based even the the tiny action sequences they have are character based so this is this was just a, a delight for me i just i just want to watch people sit down and talk to each other that's the perfect movie for me Damn, so you know i just thought about that too it's just like how nice it is. It, we, we just had a movie night with some friends. We watched When Harry Met Sally. It's mm -hmm. like a top five film for me. Yeah. We just oh, watched that's this. A great one. Sure. And I just like, I just want to watch more people talking in movies. I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I'm so tapped out right now <laughs> with current movie goings, but I'm sorry. People listening to this spot might be rolling their eyes because I feel like every episode I find a spot to criticize current <laughs> blockbuster movies, but it's just, it's tough out there, you know? It's tough out there for a Spielberg kid. Yeah. And uh, that scene when they're all on the floor of the library talking to each other, it goes on for probably at least 10 minutes. It's a con just a conversation and it just flows so naturally. Mm -hmm. Like that really is how I would talk with my. It's the best part of the movie. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you guys. Mm -hmm. And those conversations when I can only speak for myself, like school's out. Uh, maybe your parents are a little bit late to pick you up. You have a couple, uh, at least in my school. It would happen that um, my mom sometimes was late to pick me up. And then another kid who I might not interact during the actual norm, because my friends have already been picked up. I'm sort of still waiting around. And then you're kind of forced into like, well, am I just going to sit here on the street? Just wait for, or am I going <laughs> to talk to this other kid who I might not normally talk to? Yeah, in the in the pre-smartphone days, yes, you couldn't the, just sorry. bury yourself in your phone. Exactly. So. I it's either that or staring at the birds. Right. And <laughs> I would have like some of those conversations and the same dynamics that this movie captures is like, well, shit, that was a really interesting or, or nice conversation. Are we going to talk tomorrow when my slew of like normal friends arrive or not? And, but they would always have like an emotional impact on me in those conversations. Like it always like, especially at that age, like hold me shade my, point of view of things, even if I didn't necessarily hang out with that person the next Monday, it still left a footprint on my personality and kind of shaped me as I went along. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm so glad you guys mentioned that scene because it mm -hmm. is my favorite scene of, of the film. Definitely. So one of the things that I had fun thinking about is, Bill, you mentioned that you weren't necessarily, you didn't think you were 
one of the archetypes of of the five I'm with you. I never sort of like, I'm kind of like maybe all five. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I can identify with each of them, sure. Yeah. yeah. But that got me thinking about these type of scenes in movie where we sort of meet the high school feel. Like there's that kind of like intro first act. Right. Here's all the groups. Here's the, and it's, right. I thought it was so interesting seeing the evolution of that. If, if in the 80s, let's, if we start in the 80s with this one, it's so kind of like, basic like just your top top five people we got what the athlete the uh, queen you call it the prom queen uh the brain the queen the brain. yeah the, very the outcasts and basket case the, yeah the criminal mm -hmm. kind of like very basket surface case, right? surface level thing and then when you get for example the only movie that i can think can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this movie for me would be clueless from the 90s mm. And then you start having those same scenes, but just, it shows you sort of like how much we have evolved. Look. That is Alana's group over there. They do the TV station. They think that's the most important thing on earth. And that's the Persian Mafia. You can't hang with them unless you own a BMW. And there's Elton in the white vest. And all the most popular boys in the school. Including my boyfriend, ain't he cute? Yeah. So yeah, I just had fun thinking about that. We were also, so we kind of started watching 10 Things I Hate About You, but we, but it also featured like a scene because I was, I was trying to think like, what are the breakfast clubs of each decade? Uh, and, like, mean Girls parodies that scene Yeah, Mean too. Girls, the, the same yeah. thing, uh, the plastics, meaning the plastics uh -huh. and, and which does a great job with sort of like the interview style. Oh, I heard Regina went to a, I mean, that movie's a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, but I one that I thought about was also funny was the Twenty One Jump Street. I don't know if you guys uh, remember that one, but oh, the, it kind of the, uh, the remake, yeah, the remake, yeah, 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 the yeah. The re the remake the it yes, takes that very... scene and kind of flips it on his head. Mm -hmm. And here, Wait, those are goths, right? Those are nerds. I don't know what they are. What the fuck are those things? <laughs> I'm so confused right now. Is that your car? Yeah. What's that thing get? Ten miles to the gallon? Nah, try like seven. <laughs> what about you? Biodiesel dog. <laughs> Smells like egg rolls. Yeah, it does. Runs on leftover fry oil from Hunan Palace. <laughs> we try to ride bikes when we can, global crisis and whatnot. Whatever, man. I don't care about anything. Oh, you don't care about the environment? It's kind of <laughs> fucked up, man. Hey, hey, we all shut the hell up. So it just got me thinking about the evolution of teenage portrayal yeah. in movies and then i started connecting with this idea and, and we mentioned this on the pod before but um this culture writer chuck Klosterman, he had this book uh oh, yeah. the 90s and he talked about sort of the end he he had a theory that the end of monoculture happens in the 90s and then i thought is that why like breakfast club in the 80s it's so simple just these five because the monoculture there is so it's at his, I don't know, at, at its highest, like we got MTV, all that stuff. Uh, and then that journey I went through with movie scenes, does that mimic the dilution of that monoculture? And now, flash forward to right now, there, you couldn't recreate that because internet has just shattered all of that. And we all have like, I don't know, those. that's the Reddit group. That's the, you know... That's the drone people. They just flying drones. It's just like this old niche that I just feel like in the 80s. 
So anyway, I had like, I just went on a rabbit hole thinking about that. <laughs> I, I think as time goes on, teenagers, my hope is that it, it, people are just more accepting of the fact that we all contain multitudes. <laughs> there are many facets to ourselves. And that's what these kids come to learn is that they're really not that different and that they can get along. Uh, the question is what happens on Monday? They're, they're not all pigeonholed by the end of this, although they probably will be again. Next week. <laughs> um, do you want to go over some casting what ifs? Ooh. Because I I just love thinking like what could have been? How, how could this movie have been improved or ruined by different casting decisions? So the first person cast was Anthony Michael Hall. He was offered the role of Brian toward the end of filming of 16 Candles. John Hughes was obsessed with Anthony Michael Hall. I'm just going to say he. Yes, There's he so was. many stories where he thought he was like the funniest person in the world. Like that, um, that drunk voice he makes in Breakfast Club. Mm -hmm. He also has it in Weird Science. Mm -hmm. Story about them hanging out. Yep, and he's so. just laughing at Anthony Michael Hall. I was like. All right, I get it, but... <laughs> yeah, he wrote an entire scene around that impression yeah, yeah. in Weird Science. So, yeah, I think it's questionable. But um, <laughs> he probably saw he probably saw a lot of himself in Anthony Michael Hall. Maybe that's True, why. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's, oh, that's that's a good point. Mm -hmm. I, th I think Brian... I, th I think he's probably the best actor in the movie, I think. I agree. I think he's perfect. Definitely. Do you think he's the best performance in the movie, too? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean... I think Judd Nelson is so over the top. I mean, he's entertaining, yeah. but mm -hmm. no. He also I, has I, the most material. That's the I thing. Think, like, I was surprised how, how much does. it was all that character just driving, driving forth. So. Well, without that character, right. no one would have said a word to each other. So, that, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> they never uh, would have smoked pot. They never would have tried to break exactly. the rules. They never would have done anything. <laughs> uh, okay, so then. Uh, he's the Ferris. He's the, he's the prime mover there. Yeah. For sure. So, um. Molly Ringwald, John Hughes obviously loves her too. He's put her in multiple movies as well. Mm -hmm. um, she was offered the role of Allison and she was kind of mad because she wanted to play Claire. Um, but Robin Wright, Jodie Foster, Diane Lane, and Laura Dern were all being considered for Claire. So None of them are a great mm. fit. They're just great actresses, amazing names, but they're too serious. I feel like it would have been too... Jodie Foster, for sure. <laughs> I mean, she's already playing like child sex workers so i yeah. don't think that she could go into this role but um i think robin wright maybe could have done it yeah yeah i could see that yeah um interesting yeah ultimately ringwald convinced hughes uh to let her play claire so then ali sheedy was allison mm -hmm. and then uh we come to emilio estevez he was cast drumroll as john bender nah don't see it well uh would not have worked would not have worked well, yeah, so I think everything ended up for the best, but um, actually the the reason why he went over to playing Andrew is because Hughes didn't feel like he had any good prospects for Andrew. And he was like, well, Emilio, you can probably do it. So. <laughs> I don't know if this is a hot take, but he barely works as his character. The only reason he works, he's a wrestler. Oh, really? But if they would have said he's a football player or a basketball <laughs> uh, player, yeah. I would have been like, no, but right. wrestlers are, are no, like, I not. could see that. <laughs> or maybe yeah. jockey. <laughs> he was good for his weight class. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then for Bender, Nicolas Cage was considered. Oh, no. no. And ultimately, uh, he was, you know, next, but it came down to Judd Nelson and John Cusack. John Cusack would have been great. I mean, he can do 
Well, Hughes yeah. Hughes agreed because Cusack had actually Cusack been cast. Cusack would have been good in the movie in probably any role, but exactly, he's yeah. Great. Well, he he won the role uh, right up until shooting, and mm-hmm. then Hughes changed his mind. He thought Cusack wasn't intimidating enough, which is fair. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if I would have disliked him. Yeah, true, right? You yeah. would have sympathized with like right. love that yeah. role, right? Oh, yes, Matt Dillon also would have been. What really do you guys good. think about Matt Dillon? Ooh, yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Could, Matt, yeah, yeah. Matt Dillon could could look like he can punch you and and. Yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Outsiders, Rumblefish. He was good in those movies. Yes, he hit movies. <laughs> I got one more fun thing on casting. Uh, the janitor uh, was originally supposed to be Carl Rick Moranis. <laughs> Um, but he left the project due to creative differences. Um, I'm really curious what those differences were because there was like <laughs> two scenes tops. Um, but then he was replaced right, with John Capello. Right. So, Paolo, you said that your favorite John Hughes is Ferris Bueller. Did you notice anything about the shooting location? Mm. It's the same high school? It's the same high school. Yeah. So the interior same is the anyways, same high right? school. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then apparently uh, they wanted to use that library, but it was too small to shoot in. So they just built a larger version, but basically identical, uh, in the school library. Yeah. It's actually the biggest library I've ever seen for a school (laughs) with that enormous statue as well. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I know. Which gets defaced with like a pimento loaf slice. I know. (laughs) I was thinking is John Hughes the best needle drop director and i was thinking who can give him a run for his money i think people would say immediately quentin tarantino but i would say quentin tarantino does genre movies so their needle drops could be really fun like put a rock song on a cowboy or a ninja sword fight but in terms of like music creation it's really impressive the body of work i feel like john hughes uh, left behind. I actually, Bill, I think I, sh- I show you this on one of the Deep Cups recording. I bought a John mm-hmm. Hughes mixtape vinyl box set. And I was... Oh, yeah, that's a great oh, set. Man, it's so, it's so, it is so good. And I was reading the liner notes because it actually Did has... Did you buy it in vinyl or did you get it in cassette? <laughs> in vinyl, but I was almost going to buy it in both in, in CD too. Uh, oh, no, sorry. You said cassette, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do have a cassette play right away. Yeah. The cassettes are back. Yeah, I was reading the liner notes and it features like an interview with Matthew Broderick, an interview with his son and his music supervisor. And and one of the cool things about this box set is that his music supervisor kind of goes through all the whole tracks and talks a little bit about why they picked the song or just something that. But I did want to read you. I have some stuff for the songs, but I did want to read you some specific John Hughes related anecdotes that I thought were really fun and quote. Hughes took pride in preparing his films with music that wasn't necessarily at the top of the charts in America. And he frequently evangelized band and records to his friends, making mixtapes for the cast and crews of his films. Hmm. This one relates, Upon the release of Ferry Bueller's Days Off, Hughes reportedly pressed up thousands of copies of a seven-inch promotional single with Beat City by the Flower Pot Man on hmm. side A, Back with I'm Afraid by The Blue Room, which was given out on select advanced screening of the film and mailed out to his mailing list, free of charge as a labor of love. So (laughs) I just thought that was so cool to like, I'm just going to press this record on my own and just give it to people for free. Just speaks to the the love of 
something because I've been in that position. I'd be like, I love this song so much that I just want to like go on top of a mountain and shout it. I thought that was a really Spread cool the word. And here's another one. I'll save That's a couple. A great track, by the way, Beat City. Oh yeah, yeah. Beat City down I think that might be my favorite needle drop from Ferris Bueller's Days Up. Days off, if you don't count Twist and Shout, that's more like a performance. Right. Here's another one, John Hughes, that I wanted. I thought it was so cool. Perhaps this box set will elicit a similar reaction. For me, it serves as a reminder, not just the musicians he championed in the 1980s, but how intensely his search for music expanded beyond this era. Until his final days, he was still collecting outrageous amounts of music from around the world. Galaxies removed from the new romantics and new wave sounds that, to many, still define him. The point was to be on the perpetual lookout and always share the results. As a seasoned distributor of cassette mixtape, he later embraced the digitization of music, though he was still burdened by organization overload, something that any music collector can relate to. I definitely do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Your your vinyl case is literally breaking (laughs) under the weight of all of the records. (laughs) In the 90s, attempts to alphabetize his sprawling CD collections were abandoned by letter C. So apparently letter C, (laughs) he was like, this is too much. When he began burning on wildly amounts of mixed CDs for friends, he eventually found it easier to hand out fully loaded iPods instead. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, when he passed in 2009, he left behind a fleet of hard drives filled to capacity with music research. Wow. Uh, man, that paragraph that paragraph just speaks to, I don't know, my my fiber, my being, because I just that's why I aspire to just <laughs> never stop being thirsty for new music. Because as, as they point out, they point out here, he moved on, not moved on, but he branch out to new things he he just wasn't like obsessed with like uk new wave uh all of his life uh and man i would have loved to get like an ipod from john hughes being like here's a fully loaded <laughs> ipod sure. just listen to this i would have swapped mixtapes with him absolutely sure. and i love uh bill this has come up a lot on deep cuts you guys would mention ah uh mm-hmm. i still have the mixtape you created for me back then and that's <laughs> yes, where i discovered that, that song the man time. the the Art of mixtape. Maxell tapes, we would trade back and forth, for sure. But you're absolutely right. He he, champ- he championed so many bands that, uh, you know, I was a fan of. So, I mean, we overlapped in our taste. You know, Oingo Boingo, Psych Furs, New Order, Smiths, English Beat, Flesh for Lulu. I mean, and his soundtracks are great. Pretty in Pink is obviously a, a huge one. Right. Um, so many great soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, with that said, I guess, should we move on to, should we take a quick break and then talk about the song? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to toggle this behemoth. I mean, this is a <laughs> classic, but we're up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. Let's go. We're back and we are talking Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds from the 1985 movie. The Breakfast Club. What do you got for us today? <laughs> okay. Don't You Forget About Me is a song by Scottish new wave rock band Simple Minds for The Breakfast Club. The song was written by record producer Keith Forsey and guitarist Steve Schiff. 
So off the top, quick sidebar. When we started recording season two, we didn't realize that we had two songs by Keith Forzy, which is actually super exciting for me because a little while ago, I didn't know who this man was. And now I think he should be a household name. He's so cool. So if you'd like to know the ins and outs of Forzy's amazing songwriting career, check out our never ending story episode because there's so much awesome stuff to discuss about him. Just quickly, Forzy played drums for Giorgio Moroder before adding producing and songwriting to his resume. And then for Steve Schiff, he played guitar for the likes of Nina Hagen and Nadia Capice, which was a collaboration with the bassist Mickey Steele of The Runaways and The Bangles. Forzy was producing the record uh, for the soundtrack and is responsible for the movie's score. When it came time to write original songs, Forzy and Schiff drew inspiration from a new wave band they both admired, Simple Minds. Today, Simple Minds is known as an incredibly popular band of the 80s and the all-time biggest-selling band from Scotland. Originally formed in 1977 by childhood friends Jim Kerr and Charlie Birchill, they've remained active since then, and they have 20 studio albums to date, five of which were UK albums chart number one albums. But for our purposes, in 1985, they had successful singles with Glittering Prize, Someone Somewhere in Summertime, and Waterfront. Back to Forzy, he brought the song originally to Brian Ferry and Billy Idol, uh, the latter of whom Forzy knew well from producing his solo debut album and its follow-up Rebel Yell. But as we know, both of them passed. They didn't want to record the song. Uh, <laughs> then Forzy took his demo uh, of Don't You Forget About I Me. I think we should be grateful. It, oh, yeah. If you've ever heard Billy Idol's version, it's not good. Yep. Yeah. We're going to get nope, a taste of you. it later. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So then Forzy took his demo to Simple Minds and they initially declined to record the record for the soundtrack. Uh, here's a taste of what that demo sounded like. Allegedly, they thought it sounded more like the Psychedelic Furs, uh, whose song Pretty in Pink you can hear in, you guessed it, John Hughes' 1986 movie Pretty in Pink. I think the psychedelic furs are they the same one from the ghost in me yes well the ghost the ghost in you mm -hmm. the, sorry love my way the ghost in you i think that was feature on stranger thing that song yes so, yeah so mm -hmm. they are they are riding that stranger things popularity <laughs> which we know what can do to absolutely <laughs> artists. just yeah. ask kate bush <laughs> mm -hmm. also simple minds wasn't crazy about the song they were reluctant to record material that they didn't write they were also focused on recording their next album, Once Upon a Time, which included a song that they were very excited about. That would be Alive and Kicking. No shit that they were excited. This is yeah, a banger. It really oh is. Oh my God, I love it. Kicking is yeah. so good. <laughs> also, meanwhile, they were kind of frustrated that their attempts to break into the American market were not going according to plan. Luckily for us, their record label made them reconsider recording Don't You Forget About Me. And also Kerr's wife at the time, the amazing rocker Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders, really believed in this song and was hounding Kerr to record it. 
So Forzy called up Kerr and they offered to spend some time with the band. Guitarist Charlie Burchill would say that they got along with Forzy really well and they admired a lot of his former work. Forzy had drummed in a German experimental band and for Marauder, as we mentioned before, on tracks like I Feel Love, which a lot of new wave and post-punk groups admired. The band finally relented, they broke them down, and they agreed to record the song. They rearranged Don't You Forget About Me and then recorded it in three hours. One of their additions was the iconic La 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 vocal fills from Kerr, simply because he planned on filling it in with lyrics later, but Forzy loved it as is and refused to change it. After this, they quickly forgot about the song and they went back to working on Once Upon a Time. Uh, however, it soon became impossible to ignore as the band finally got their US radio airplay and success. The song peaked at number one on the US Billboard Hot 100 and mainstream rock charts. They recorded a music video for the song in which the band plays in a room that becomes more cluttered with objects as the video goes on. It features a TV playing scenes from The Breakfast Club, so that's our movie tie-in in there. At the time, the video was nominated for two MTV Video Awards and today has nearly 275 million views on YouTube. The so. video was nominated for MTV Video Awards? That's right. All right. Yeah. I mean, I love I love it, but the video is like, mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, okay, let, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about this. That the was coming in 85, Paolo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, Tell so when I- around the room. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I would like to add to your setup, um, I read on a Forbes article of all places. So apparently Jim Kerr, he got notified by a telegram that it had reached the song number one in America. And he was in a hotel and he went downstairs to the bar and he was just so hyped that he started buying drinks to everyone <laughs> who was coming in the in the lobby hotel just like and it apparently cost him like a fortune he rank up the bill got super drunk regretted the next day super hangover but hey man you gotta celebrate a number one hit i get it yeah for sure and it seems like they kind of had a roller coaster of emotions around this song because originally they're psyched and then it's a little bittersweet because they're known for the song that they weren't really that responsible for writing and they felt kind of strange right. about that then they went through a period of time where they refused to play the song live and then ultimately came back around here's the thing this is one of those stories that there's all so many stories about bands hating their most number one hit or something they're really known for right mm -hmm. this is one of the few ones that actually kind of makes sense because they're just saying it's a song that we didn't write versus i right. roll my eyes when it's like a song you wrote and you just hate it because it's popular this is it makes sense it's like they're not crazy like i like i, I actually get it but I, I am glad that they came around because i mean we'll get into this later i think it is their song no they definitely made it like listening from the demo to to their version of course it's inspired by them so it already sort of has that sound built in yeah Paolo, an example of a band that hates their <laughs> their creation i think was um warrant with cherry pie oh so many a flock of seagulls yeah. like the test uh <laughs> i ran yep yeah with cherry pie like it's obviously a banger so i'm like why are you so upset but it's also kind of a dumb song <laughs> so i feel like they're like we yeah <laughs> they're like we have better stuff but like people just want to rock out to cherry pie nothing's better than cherry pie. yeah <laughs> all right bill we talked about your strong connection to the movie let's talk about the the song you mentioned that you had this even stronger connection to 
Simple Minds before. You saw this movie. You liked the movie. Yeah, no, everything just kind of uh, culminated in 1985 because I was a fan of Simple Minds probably in 83, 84. Uh, Sparkle in the Rain was a big record for me and some of my friends. Were you out there in the streets being like, guys, the song is great, but have you heard Alive and Kicking? That's the good one. (laughs) Me and my buddies were high school DJs and we would play Simple Minds like before the kids would come into the the dance when Mm -hmm. kids used to have dances. Uh, but we could never play Simple Minds for anybody because nobody knew who the hell they were and they'd want us to turn us up, turn it off. So, um, so this was kind of exciting that we actually got to uh, play Simple Minds at a at a dance. So that so that was fun. And um, you know, in 1985, Simple Minds also played Live Aid. That was a huge yeah. deal. For Ooh, you! I had that on my notes. That is one hell of a performance. There were a hundred thousand people there. It's just a sea of people. Mm-hmm. But also something that came up. Simple Minds is a amazing live band i i mean i can't imagine like like i saw their um obviously it's good to see them in live aid like at their peak this song is hitting they're young they're but i also saw 2005 performance in like the billboard music awards and they got the crowd like you see jennifer lopez just singing out loud like everyone is Mm -hmm. just it's just (laughs) captivated you know by 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 this song and, and their performance he's a really good front man Oh, Jim, Jim is great. Charlie's great. Uh, Mel Gaynor, the drummer, fantastic. And I was lucky We'll get enough, to that, yeah. 1986 uh, at the Wang Center in Boston, we got front row tickets for Simple Minds. Whoa. This was right at the height of their, right at the height of their popularity. Paolo, what's your relationship with this song? I was born in 85. And you would think that, I mean, technically- you born in 85. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I was born in 86. Oh. Sophie, are you the fact checker on this case, on this uh, podcast? <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> the music that I listened to my high school years, I, I have a nostalgic connection, but as Sophie knows and anyone who knows me, I am just 80 obsessed. This is to me like an all-time banger. I, I don't know how to say it. It, it. Outside of its context, like I don't even think about it like as an 80s song. It, it is, but I, to me it's just, classic it, it has transcended its decade its instrumentation its purpose as a movie soundtrack it's a it's what youth sounds like to me i don't know <laughs> it's 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 the music the anthem of of youth and i guess every time i hear it i just either get lost in like just the music of it or go back to this feeling of this energy just this you know fist up in the air you know uh, everything's ahead of me kind of mm-hmm. feeling. But so, uh, you're not obsessed with 80s. Uh, so, uh, I wonder what your connection to this is. I've always loved this song. Of course, I was introduced to it through the movie. I had the soundtrack on CD. I am a little embarrassed to say that I haven't done much research into Simple Minds, you know, after this song which is totally my bad because I actually love new wave bands. Like we'll that's, take it off there. Yeah. Sophie. I'll, I'll bore you. Okay. I'll bore you silly. <laughs> but that's, so this is the thing and, and Bill in my, in my make your heart ache if, when I mentioned this, but I think that there is a good chunk of people out there that might consider simple minds, a one hit wonder. Yeah. Even as, blas- in the US. In the even US. as, as blasphemy as, as that would sound to you. And no, you're right. But you're right. Take me, for example. I just admitted that I'm just obsessed with 80s music, 80s culture. And even before your podcast, Deep Cuts, 
I really wasn't familiar with. Like, I, I know that they weren't a one-hit wonder. I didn't classify them as that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that they had so much other music that is on par with that. One of the stories with this song is not only that they did not want to record a song that wasn't theirs, but they also thought, hey, man, we got this song Alive and Kicking, which we think will be great for this movie. Also, we like it, it captures that youth teen spirit it also has the uh like a la 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 kind of stuff like it's very much a similar song and honestly who knows if they would have used that song it could have been equally a great as a hit you 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 never know but i think it would have been popular but i don't think it would have it it just isn't as appropriate for the movie and that it's the symbiotic relationship of the movie playing off of the song playing off of the movie which i think really elevated this song because the entire question of the movie is are these kids going to acknowledge each other on monday or not and i think this is sort of a a a plea like don't forget about me don't forget about this saturday that we had together right and obviously forcey used that you know discussion of course yeah as the Mm -hmm. impetus for his song so it's Mm -hmm. It's it's specifically written for the the movie, unlike say Pretty in Pink, which was a found song and then put in the movie, and they worked the movie around it. This yeah. is the opposite. This the song is specifically for the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pretty in Pink is just a great title. Like you have to lead with that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I read that Simple Minds agreed to do the song because, like you said, Forcey traveled to the UK and they hang out, and he was like, "Oh my God, this guy is so cool over a pint of beer. Mm-hmm. Let's do it." But I also read that that wasn't the thing that sealed the deal. Even before that, they were still kind of like, we really like you, but we just still don't know. And then John Hughes. (laughs) Yeah, John Hughes met with the band, showed them how much of a fan he personally was, and then gave him a private screen of the movie and told him how they were going to use the song. And that supposedly was what sealed the deal, which makes sense because if you watch the movie, this is not just an end credit song. This is a beginning credit song. Beginning and end. Especially yeah. for a movie, like you guys say, it feels like a play. It feels like besides that play, the other thing that you have to storytelling to summarize this movie, it is this song. It's like, it's almost like you couldn't really have, it's the pre- prelude and the epilogue yeah. kind of, it's those two things. Mm-hmm. And if you're a band, how could you say no to that? Seeing someone like my song is going to be featured this prominently. And not only that, one of the things that I also liked in the movie, it kind of has like instrumental parts of the song almost used as score. And I think at the beginning and, mm-hmm. and throughout, mm-hmm. I think that's from the 12 inch that you uh, showed us on camera. I think extended they use. Mix. Yeah. Yeah. The extended mix, mm-hmm. which uh, I actually have. A little bit here to play. See, that's the the beginning. The intro of that extended version yeah. is is different. Right. The start of the movie uses the extended version. Yeah, so the start of the movie kind of scores. He kind of uses this uses this as as score. And by the way, I'm totally hearing the Marauder influence in that extended mix. Yeah. Another reason I love this song, Sophie, you asked me why I love this song. There's so many reasons, mm-hmm. but uh, as you know, I used to play drums. And holy shit, are the drums great in this song. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! I mean, Borzy's a drummer. What do you expect? Oh, my God. The, it has one of my favorite ever drum fills, and it's this baby. Yeah. 
Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> she just gives me. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. Mel Gainer is such a powerful drummer. He's a lot of fun live, too, Paolo. He, apparently, this was his favorite song. The his, the drummer he he was and I was like yeah no shit this is yeah. your favorite song you get to shine like no one <laughs> I get to open the song I get to end the song uh-huh. so one of the things my journey yeah, as a sure. as an aspiring drummer was that I started out and I think this is such a cliche but hearing double pedal like we talked about a little bit about jumping on the pod this uh cock rock because you were listening to our hero episode we're talking about those bands <laughs> and it was all about how many toms yeah. you can have how many noise you can make all that stuff. And here, eventually, as I matured and evolved as a drummer, it's not about that. It's not about complicated, but it's more about the best thing that fits the song. And this is a a great example that I would just go through. Like, it's not that it's the most complicated drum fill. It's just that, oh, my God, it's just the perfect blend of what the song needs. It is also kind of complicated, but simple it's just, man, it's all about the groove, the feel. Yeah, it's not about how many drums you have surrounding you. Oh, my God. I had so many. I was Those like. Guys in the 80s would have, would have, you know, <laughs> yeah. I need drums. I had like you so many tubs. down. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I need to find a way to fit this into a song. I just don't know how to use it, but it's there. I have six of them. <laughs> yeah. In Freaks and Geeks. Uh, oh yes, yes, yeah, exactly. That's it's your Jason Segel character. Drum kit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, while I have become more recently acquainted with Simple Minds, I wanted to shine a little bit of a light on Robin Clark, who was heavily featured in their Once Upon a Time album, and she did the backing vocals in Alive and Kicking. And I am very familiar with her voice because (laughs) she is good friends with Luther Vandross and they were both in David Bowie's band in the mid-70s during the Young American years. Ah, Young Americans, yeah. 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 So uh, Vandross would, of course, go on to be a soloist in his own right with songs like Here and Now and Never Too Much. Here and now I promise to love Um, And they were integral to the shaping of Young Americans. Uh, You can see both of them in a performance of Young Americans on the Dick Cavett show. And um, here's actually an awesome clip of Bowie, Clark, Vandross and Ava Cherry rehearsing the song Right, which is on Young Americans as well. Taking you with me, loving it, doing it right till time, giving it, giving it, keeping it back. I'll put it on the on our socials because like you just have to see all of them together singing. It's really incredible. Mm-hmm. And then I guess while we're here, I may as well say Vandross has a writing credit with Bowie since they reworked one of his songs into Fascination. And you can hear Clark singing on there as well. I may be mistaken, but I'm top pretty 10 sure. Bowie song, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. I, love I, love I completely record. agree, uh, which is, you know, tough for me to to say because I'm a big, big Bowie fan over here. There's and, so many. I know. Yeah. Hey, how about the fact we, we didn't mention this? Bowie, Bowie is quoted at the beginning of this movie. That's right. He is. And uh, we forgot changes. Changes is quoted. I hadn't I, I hadn't remembered that. 
until I saw it again. Yeah. And Simple Minds, uh, their band name comes from a Bowie lyric. So there's a lot of Bowie love. Uh, it's in Gene Genie, I think it is. Yeah. You, I mean, you yeah. stole. That's what I was going to say. Oh, okay. Uh, we, we are back to Bill. We used to do this. We used to do thunders. this. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. We used to do this thing where we always try to fit Bowie in some shape or form he'll on the podcast. Post, so he'll get to yeah. say it. No, no, because we're such huge Bowie fans, but we always try to find a way. And oh, I, he's I love amazing. It. Now, amazing. season two, we're back to finding a way to fit Bowie. But yeah, the, the you're right. Gene Genie mm -hmm. is the song, and the lyrics is so simple minded, he can't drive his module. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's like a little lyric mm -hmm. from Gene Genie that nice. simple minds uh, use. So yeah. Yeah. Nice callback. So, yeah, I just I just wanted to give a little love to kind of an unsung hero of new wave rock. No, for sure. I mean, that's again, that's mm -hmm. one of the many things we love about this podcast is just we discover so many, for lack of a better word, background artists that just have this amazing mm -hmm. like studio musicians, uh, collaborators, songwriters who just have this ama amazing music legacy and repertoire. And it always happens. It always happens. I do want to mention something about the song. I found some interesting tidbits. One of my favorite things in music is trying to identify like music influences or where things come from. Like, I mean, you know, I remember in the conservatory uh, when I studied music, there was a saying that first came Johann Sebastian Bach and then everything else, because apparently everything is derived just from him. <laughs> you know, uh, music is just that people borrowing from people and borrowing and borrowing. And then we go and make it our own. So I found this um, great article in American Songwriter that quotes uh, Forsey from a 2018 interview that he said that uh, the groove for Don't You Forget About Me was inspired by Fumboy 3's cover of Our Leaps Are Sealed. So oh. like the instrumentation, the groove oh, is... the Go-Go song, yeah. Yeah, so... But th this cover specifically, he said... Like, it was kind of like an inspiration for their instrumentation. Let's hmm. hear it. And yeah, I mean, I can see it. I can see the, the guitar. Mm -hmm. the, the, yeah, that kind of like... I can hear the picking. it. Yeah. Also, the bass has a forward mm -hmm. momentum. And that's one of the things I also love the, about the music of this song is, is that bass just has that kind of like... Boom, 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 like, just really like a forward momentum. Yeah. To it, that the eighties had great bassists. Derek Forbes, yeah. one of my favorites from Simple Minds. This is kind of what I do. I try to find meaning where maybe somewhere there is, but it just also kind of captures like that youth. You know, we talked a lot about youth in this song and and that forward momentum, and then that keyboard, that triumphant keyboard line. It just dun 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 dun. dun. It's just it feels such a you know anthem. In, in movie world, anthem gets mm -hmm. thrown a lot. But this one really feels like an anthem of a song. Yeah, it's triumphant at the end. And that's why Bender, you know, is right. raising his fist, punching the air mm -hmm. and the freeze frame and everything. Yeah, it works perfectly. Mm -hmm. Sophie, you mentioned on your setup, Billy Idol's version. Bill, you also mentioned it. I did, yeah. Should we should we play a clip? Do we yeah. have a clip? <laughs> Yeah, so that came from his 2001 Greatest Hits compilation. I don't know if there was some regret in there for not recording it originally in 85, <laughs> um, but he he found a way to sneak it in there. <laughs> I think it might be like a more like a marketing thing. Like every Maybe. greatest, yeah. every greatest I, hits. I like has Billy like Idol, but I don't like 
same. I we were both shaking like our hands that. on the on the video call, Bill and I. It's just also Billy Idol is also doing stuff that he doesn't necessarily do. Like those vocal lines, that was Jim Kerr who added that. All those things. So it's weird. He's not doing the version he would have, whatever version he would have right. first done. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to do the simple mind version, and that's not him either. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So yeah, not for me. Uh, so no offense, though. Billy. We yeah. love you as an artist, but <laughs> stick to your own stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, another thing Sophie really mentioned that I thought it was really cool is that Simple Minds are going strong. They, they just really released are. a new album in 2022. Yes. Um, and this also coincided with when I discover Simple Minds with your podcast, uh, Bill. So I was like, oh man, there's also like uh, Simple Minds new album. Let me check that out. And you know they, what? They are alive and kicking. Alive and <laughs> kicking because I think, man, I really, there's a, there's single from their album. I think it's really good. I agree. I put it on my, I still make mixtape, so to speak. <laughs> I put it on my best of, uh, 2022. Yeah. That song, yeah. First you jump is really good. Yeah. It's a really good tune. I just love when I say bands that are a couple of decades removed are just still releasing some really good music. Um, this is more than a couple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's crazy. This is almost 40 years since 85. Yeah. I mean, God. Yeah, I want to go back also to that um, liner notes for that vinyl box set that I have. And I did some find some stuff sort of specific to John Hughes' fascination with UK music. Um, and I'll quote, Anytime we'd go to a record store, John would hit the import section immediately. This is Claude Van Horten, who is a lifelong friend from high school who knew John Hughes. Um, and he quotes, uh, Mostly it was British imports. As a teenager... The two would listen to records in the basement of his parents' house. John had his little bedroom downstairs, and he could play his music loud. He'd put on a song, I'd listen, then boom, he'd pick up the needle and poop and move it to another song. He did this his entire life. I could never listen to a whole song with John. <laughs> uh, I, 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 again, I think that's, that's funny because I can relate when listening to... Uh, Bill, did you, have, did you get this when you're showing music to people? You're kind of like... All right, now I gotta wait three yes. minutes for you to. Yeah. You, you get a little overjoyed. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, you gotta hear this you part. Hear this part. This you part. gotta hear this part. So, yeah. yeah. You overwhelm people. <laughs> and then another bit I found from this notes it said John Hughes loved Britain and everything British, but most of all, he loved British music. He went through his high school at a time when liking British music made you a bit different, a bit special. The subject and heart of this teen movie. Right from the start, his early films. If given the choice and the budget, he would lay in British music tracks rather than the score. Even the score he did use often sounded like music coming out of Britain at the time. You remember Ferris Bueller? Mm-hmm. You remember his bedroom? Yeah. I mean, the walls of his bedroom are covered with British bands, including Simple Minds. Mm-hmm. I loved that bedroom. <laughs> and, 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 and that just spoke to me. I was like, oh, I want to live in that room. One of the goals I had for ourselves yeah. is to find something that we stump you with something like, Ooh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> this okay. is hopefully my, my, my best attempt, but did you know that Molly Ringwald did a cover of this song? 
She released. A, no, I did not. You stumped me. She released. She a, released it. Yeah, she released an album of like covering classic, like classic standards. She has an album. Yeah, she has an album, and she included a, a cover of "Don't You Forget About Me" as a tribute to John. The album came after he passed away, I think. Huh. Uh, so here. Don't you forget about me. Yeah, it's Molly Ringwald covering uh, Don't You Forget About Me. But yeah. How about that? <laughs> I, I, I had no I know idea. I, had... I know it's a tribute, so I don't want to be too harsh on it. No, but I... I... But... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do it. Answer both questions. Let's start with Seven Seconds in Heaven. What seven seconds from the song gives you goosebumps? Bill, you're up first. I'm up first. Well, I'm going to go with... Uh... You know, where the song builds up again near the end, and then you get the rat a tat tat, the drum fills, oh, and all yeah. the la la la's that Jim added. We got it here for you. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> oh, sometimes we play stuff on this spot that does not give me goosebumps. I have to say, those do give me goosebumps. <laughs> uh, yeah, this would have, yeah. this is not my pick, but this is what I debated. Whether this or what I eventually ended up using. Uh, but so, what are your seven seconds in heaven? This one was tough because there's so much good stuff in this song. Uh, but I, I just had to go with uh, just the opener. What I was going to say about the hay in the beginning was that it commands attention. And yes. like in a song called Don't You Forget About Me, like you definitely won't forget that beginning. Also in a song right. about teenagers in a movie about teenagers. That's all we're that's that's all teenagers we want. It's command attention. We want like I'm a teenager now. But when I, when I was a teenager, that's what we wanted. Like, hey, <laughs> hey, hey. But also talk about. What uh, Jim Kerr does here with his ooh, I like. I feel, I feel played as a puppet. My emotions, like I go on a roller coaster <laughs> of emotions. I follow him through that. Like he's just kind of like, yeah, it's very uh, Danny Elfman, very uh, Oingo Boingo. That ooh, oh, yeah. oh hey, I did not connect that. Yeah. Uh, man, like I said, eighties music, the best. Yeah. Uh, favorite lyric. Each host sheds light on their favorite lyric. Uh, Bill, what do you got for us? What's your first? If you have any, you can say no, by the way. Can, can I, can I choose La La La's? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, then, well, then I will. I mean, obviously they're not poignant in any meaningful way, but, uh, but, but, but they do elevate the song. Um, and I, and I think you were saying, you know, he, he added those in as a sort of a placeholder while he was thinking about the lyrics and then decided not to put any in. And I think that was a wise decision. I think it's a great part of the song. I read in an the interview. La 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 La's, my favorite <laughs> lyrics. No, I mean, I read in an interview, he was thinking about, hey Jude, Beatles. I mean, one of perhaps the most, mm. yep. the most epic endings to a song. Like if you see Hey Jude right. performances, it's like the, the all time yep. sing it people. Uh, <laughs> So hey, uh, yeah. Ted Lasso. Easy to remember. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a good pick. I like that pick, Bill. That's mm -hmm. a really good pick. Uh, so what do you got? 
Mine's not complicated. It's literally just the phrase, don't you forget about me. Um, I think it's a really interesting sentence. Mm -hmm. Like you said, like a lot of teenagers can relate to that feeling. And um, depending on how you deliver it, like it could be pleading, it could be threatening, you know, like there's a lot of emotion in those words. Yeah. One of the things I saw, I saw online and when I think that line, don't you forget about me, such a cool interpretation is that he can also say it's an interpretation of one speaking inward to yourself saying, don't you forget about your youth? You know, that feeling that you feel at that age, uh, what the feelings that you <laughs> felt, that energy, don't you forget about it? Um, so I also love yeah. that read on that film. Mm-hmm. You know, man, this is why it's such a classic and for, for that. We mentioned teen anthem because it just has so many ways that you can connect to it hall of fame moment who or what had their best moment in pop culture with this movie and or song it can be a person a studio a film music genre anything the more clever you can get with it the better so this is a really good question bill do you have any nominee do you want to nominate do you think anything here makes it to the hall of fame well for me it's paul gleason as Principal Richard Vernon and the mess with the bull, you get the horns. I mean, I still use mm-hmm. that quote all the time. Yep. <laughs> and then the scene, the scene where with the bender, he keeps daring him, you know, you want another one? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know. He gets up to eight detentions. And he's going to see him for two months, which is odd. I don't know why he'd want to see him for that many times, but, um, but yeah, I, I think Gleason is great as the vice principal and just, uh, wait, he's know, a vice it's, principal. It's, it's his shining moment. Mm-hmm. He's not the principal. He's a vice so. principal. He's vice principal. Oh, no wonder he's so bitter. I don't think the principal <laughs> has to show up on Saturday. Yeah, exactly. They're not showing up Saturday. They're getting the vice principal to do nah, it. I'm kidding. Um, that, you're, you're absolutely right. That's on the money. He, mm-hmm. he kind of became like the archetype of principals for a while. You know, that, that mean principal, like there's no... Mm-hmm. Uh, he also... Right, Ferris Bueller. No, no, no. Sorry, Ferris Bueller's another. But still, you can argue that... It's another actor, but still playing that sort of like the principal thing. Um, there's the Van Wilder movies. He plays kind of like a character like this. I don't know if you know those National Lampoon's Van Wilder movies with Ryan Reynolds. He's in, tra- he's in Trading Places, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he basically kind of best known for this and sort of kept on playing yeah, a version of this role. Character. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when he has Bender in the... Uh... Bender in his in that room. Remember when he yeah. had Bender in the yep. room? Yeah. And he, mm-hmm. You know, like someday when you you've left this place, I'll find you. Yeah. <laughs> He's very threatening at that point. Anything else? Do you have anything else you want to nominate, Sophie? Yeah, I'm gonna say Hall of Fame moment for the Clinique lipstick in Black Honey. That's the lipstick that Claire applies hands free. And um, not only is that an iconic scene, but it's also an iconic lipstick. Uh, It's been around for ages. The second she pulled out that lipstick bullet, I knew exactly what it was going to be. And it actually went viral on TikTok. Did not know that. Yeah, it went viral on TikTok recently also, and it became impossible to find. So like Gen Z (laughs) got super into this one lipstick shade. Um, So yeah, I just seeing Uh. it in that scene, seeing that that's the lipstick that Claire wore. I think that you know, the costumes and the and the makeup in this movie are, are amazing. So I just think that that like infers a little bit about her character that she's wearing this incredibly popular lipstick. So, yes, I have a very dumb question. OK. 
Is what she do impressive? <laughs> not, no, not really. <laughs> is it? A, I, I can't. I don't know. It didn't seem that impressive. I was like, I, I can't tell if that's a really difficult thing or not. I don't know. It, no, I don't think it would be difficult. Um, I think that it. What it shows Come on, in that have scene. Have you tried it? Yeah. I, to be fair, I have not tried it. Um, but I think what it shows in that scene is like she does. She lets down her guard and does something kind of goofy that she wouldn't normally do because right. she's so obsessed with image. And then the betrayal of Bender starting to mock her for that. So um, yeah, right. I think that that's she's vulnerable. Yeah, right. that's more the takeaway of the scene is that she's vulnerable and does this goofy thing. Such a writer response. Yeah, sorry. The writer. <laughs> <laughs> I have some questions for you both in Hall of Fame. I'm going to do some nominations and I want you to see okay. if it makes it or not. Is this a Hall of Fame for teenagers in movies? Is this the all-time teenagers in movies? <sighs> we got this. We got Dazed and Confused could be another one. Clueless could be another one. Although... They look like more like late 20s and clueless, but whatever. <laughs> no, no, no. At least Silver Stone was pretty young. I know, I know. I'll I jump know. in and say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I think absolutely. so. Absolutely. I think so, which is, think about that statement. Hall of, like, Hall of Fame portrayal of teenagers in movies. Like, holy, holy shit. Well, I think it's because it's such a grounded movie. Like, you know, as fun as Ferris Bueller's Day Off is no one can really relate to like taking over a parade, you know? <laughs> so uh, I think that people are more likely to relate to this movie than to some of the other ones in the genre. Here's another question. Is this the hall of fame moment for the eighties, eighties movie? Is this the ultimate like eighties? Like Whoa. if I say eighties movies, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it, is this it? Uh, I'm going to say no. What is it? I'm not if sure you, it is. Um, I don't think it is. To me, it's Back to the Future. That's yeah, the ultimate. Actually, like, well, I, maybe it's because I yeah. knew you so well. I might have said Back to the Future, too. But yeah, for sure. That's all I have. But I mean, obviously, there are some more obvious ones. Uh, you know, Hall of Fame for Simple Minds, obviously. They, 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 you know, such a well-known yeah, hit. Yeah, moment for them. Um, is this a Hall of Fame moment we, for teenager soundtracks? Because here's the thing. Here's, here's I actually a, don't think this is the best soundtrack of. Yeah. it's not the best John Hughes soundtrack by any stretch. Yeah, not no, at no, all. no, no. I mean, so that's. I, I mean, yeah, aside from this iconic song, I mean, the Wang Chung song's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, okay. I don't mind Fire but, in but the honestly, Twilight. <laughs> no, no, it's yeah. fine. It's fine if you want to be. If you want to do the pommel horse and jump over the the Dewey uh -huh. Decimal system in the library like Andrew does or whatnot, mm -hmm. but um. No, Pretty in Pink is a much better soundtrack, for example. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, chock full of songs from Echo, Echo and the Bunnymen to NXS, et cetera. Is it Hall of Fame for like song, like teenager song? Is song, this a, yeah. Is this yes. the ultimate teenager sure. song? I have one that I want to nominate and I okay. want to see what, um, what you guys think. Okay. Wait, I just... <laughs> Kids in America from Clueless. I can't believe I, I begged that. <laughs> uh, no, that's definitely you not did, Sophie. Song. Sophie predicted yeah. you were about to cue that up. Yeah. No, it's a good nomination. No, it's a fun. Song, it's, a fun no, it's a good nomination, no. but no, this it's is the fun. ultimate teenage anthem Hall of Fame for that. No. Yeah. Remix with today's current artists or band. Who would you choose to perform this song if the movie came out? Oof, Bill, you got you. You're a host of a call. Well, I, I, you're a host of yeah. a podcast called 
deep cuts, lost and found. So right, right, right. Let's see so what you I, bring. I, I thought about a bunch of bands that I like. You know that maybe I would like what they would do. Maybe the National, maybe Spoon, something like that. But mm. ooh, actually, Spoon, I think it'd be yes. more interesting. I think it'd be more interesting if it was a female. Um, and that got me thinking. Uh, I don't know if you know Lucy Dacus. She did a great no. cover of Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. She's part of uh, the indie supergroup Boy Genius with Phoebe Bridgers and Julian. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'd be very curious to see what they would do with it. I think they would go in a different direction and it might appeal and, and show a different side of things. So that's, so that's who I'm going with, either Boy Genius or Lucy Dacus uh, doing a totally different version of this song. Mm-hmm. So, remix? Yeah, this one was was tough for me. Um, so I I decided to go in search of some new new wave bands. Um, it's a genre that I really like, but I was hard pressed for some contemporary bands in that sound, and I ended up finding a band called Inhaler, and I think that they're great. Oh, yeah, we'll put Bono's son. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, and yeah. then for um, yeah, Bono Sons, lead yeah, singer. yeah, okay. I'll have to listen again and see if I can if I can hear that. I went with a band that I discovered this year, really into their ar- album called Utopia, and it's a band called San Lucia. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, who- I know them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I really like this band is because they sounded, they didn't sound 80s, but they mm-hmm. had enough elements of new wave, but also sounded modern. And I found, I, I just thought immediately was like a match made in heaven for me. I was like, wow, this just, they sound like they're evolving that sound. It sounds great. Um, I checked out their records before. I was like, eh, I don't know. So I can't say I love the band, but I can say I love this album. Mm. So the album Utopia mm-hmm. and the song that I really, the one that I heard the first time is called Separate World. That's the one where I was like, wait, it's this, is this a modern band? No, this has to, oh, oh shit. WTF, a moment from the movie or song that made you think, you know what? That might have needed a second, second take, double take. Uh, Bill, do you have any WTFs for the movie or the song? Something you're kind of like, yeah. The first one is when Andrew is dancing and goes to the uh, foreign <laughs> language booth and, you know, shatters the glass. Um, yes. that's just absurd and takes you out and, t- and takes you out of the reality of the, the movie. Cause you know, otherwise the movie's fairly realistic or at least it's trying to be. Yeah. That definitely felt more weird science E than breakfast club. Yeah. And I, and I thought I read some of the John Hughes kind of regretted it too. Yeah. The dancing moves were questionable mm-hmm. are kind of like, Oof. I mean, yes. I guess he's yeah. a wrestler, but yeah. Also, is that what we is that what we does to you? I was apparently? about to say that is an uncommon reaction. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What else? So what was the second one? So that yeah. scene, I thought you could mm-hmm. get easily cut, and then I don't know if you cut it because it it kind of goes towards Bender can be a real creep, but when he's under the desk with Claire. Oh yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, a, un- there's so many moments that 
hasn't aged well. Obviously, different different decade. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yep, that is definitely one of mine as well. In particular, the upskirt shot. You know, we don't maybe need a POV of that. <laughs> um, and then I, I mean, right, I'm, right, I'm sorry right. to say that both of my answers are pretty serious to this. Um, but John Hughes movies in general don't even really seem to acknowledge people of color, like outside of gag characters. Um, so I think if we were trying to show a realistic look of an American high school, they probably wouldn't all be white kids. You know, I think that there would be some varied experiences there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, other thing is, I sorry, I don't know anyone's character name except Bender, but um, the outcaster, the the quiet one, Allison. 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 I always thought her makeover was the worst. Like she looked <laughs> way better without the makeover, and then this makeover is supposed to make her like attractive. I was like, she looks so much worse now. What are you talking about? She was like, no. I don't know. I, I thought the worst makeover in movie history for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the ending of this movie in general, where they start to pair up, um, it didn't always ring true to me. Like, I think that this was more of a movie about friendship than about romance. Uh, so just right. the random, it was seemingly random, like, oh, you got a makeover, now I'm into you thing, I feel like cheapens it yeah, a little those, bit. Those yeah. kisses at the end are kind of, you know. Yeah. It's it's not really earned, but no. I'm sure it was like, well, it's a teen movie, so we need a kiss at the end or something, you know. But I think the the reason it doesn't, it's not such a big of a sin is what they represent, which is more of like, right? You can have this strong of a connection with someone who you thought you wouldn't even be friends. Yeah. Right. So it's right. more like the symbolism to me of it rather as than as long like, as she pulls her hair back. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was a very well grease in reverse moment. Yeah. Is this a car song? No one can define it. Everyone knows when they hear it. Is this a song oh, yeah. you listen to in the oh, car? Yeah. Would, yes. It, yes. would anybody yes. say otherwise? I don't <laughs> think no, so. No, no, no. And especially the La La La's, so. that's like a windows down moment. But also, I think about, uh, <laughs> there you go. Have, you, have you guys seen the movie uh, Perks of Being the Wildfire? Perks of Being the Wildflower. Yeah. Perks of Being a Wildflower. Yeah, yeah. How they use, how they... Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how they how they use uh, that uh, Bowie hero song? Yeah. In that in that uh, car scene, this could easily like replace that Bowie song with this, and you could have that scene work equally as well. Maybe. So this is why like this could be absolutely a, a car song. I mean, this is an anything song. This is a cruise ship song, an airplane <laughs> song, on space, on space floating. You would still play this, and like, man, it makes perfect sense. It with- is, but but to put it in any other movie would be. A breakfast club reference like they do an easy a you know at the end the, with the fist in the air right so yeah yeah patreon submitted question uh we had a patreon submitted question and our question for this week is what's your favorite 80s movie song oh bill uh we'll start with you i could choose so many and i almost was i was almost gonna say other john hughes movies and songs from there but i think i'm gonna go with the movie that i think maybe has maybe has the strongest soundtrack from the 80s which is valley girl Mm. Twice in the movie, they use Melt With You by Modern English. Ah. Uh, there's a montage when Randy and Julie get together, kind of the Romeo and Juliet of the, the story. And then at the very end, they leave the prom and they leave to Melt With You again. And the song's obviously been played a million times and it's iconic at this point.
But in 1983, that was huge. And I absolutely loved it. And if you go and watch it again, it works so well. And it's such a great moment uh, in the movie, well, twice. And uh, you guys should really do Valley Girl, by the way. There are so many great songs from Valley Girl. Done. We'll do it. Done. Talk about, <laughs> talk about a comeback. You stunned me with that. I, I have to admit, I, I doesn't ring, maybe just by name, it doesn't ring a bell, but neither the movie have or you the song. Val- you, guys, you guys need to watch Valley Girl. I should have seen it coming. Again, host of Deep <laughs> Cuts, Less yeah. Than Found. And he stunned me with something I haven't heard of. <laughs> shocker. Shocker. Uh, I'm excited. I got homework. Uh, hey, and maybe that could be your your stint, too, on the song will go on. Now <laughs> So, favorite movie, favorite Ooh, 80s movie song? Man, I mean, this one's in the running, for sure. Um, but I just, you, you know, for, for interest, I came up with two others. If we're talking needle drops, um, in your eyes, Peter Gabriel. Uh, that mm. one's oh, sure. Yeah. That's a good one. Say anything, you know, back to John Cusack, you know. Say anything, yeah. the boombox, of uh-huh, course. Is yeah, it because yeah. you knew a boy who also had the boombox and stuff and... <laughs> definitely, not, no, definitely not definitely <laughs> not kickboxer um, with the boom box yeah. <laughs> uh, and if we're going originals uh, I'm going with Cat People by David Bowie again me with oh, the Bowie that's a great tune my sorry my answer for favorite movie song we cover here in the song go on it's weird science I adore <laughs> I adore I am a huge uh, Uncle Boingo fan but weird science is I, I cannot get tired of it I, I love Oingo Boingo yep Love it. Um, this is a silly question. Will the song go on? Will the song live on and continue to be part of pop culture? Look, this is a yes. It has. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a no-brainer. At the end of the row, but still, we got some YouTube comments at that time of the show where we tap into what people are saying all these years after. Sophie, what did you find anything? Yeah, I mean... To be honest, most of them are like, I was 15 years old when this movie came out, and now I'm this old. Yeah, this is a lot lot of those. And you know what? Fair. Absolutely fair. Um, So I tried to pick some that were a little different. Um, So here's our first one. (laughs) It's exciting to think that in 100 years from now, someone somewhere will get goosebumps just like me, parentheses us, listening to this amazing song. If by chance you are reading this by then, please keep the 80s flame alive and kicking. So we have a, a couple Simple Minds references in that comment. I think that one was cute. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very uh, nice. Here's our next one. I'm 81 years young, and sometimes I forget about me, but I'm still able to keep rocking, mainly in my rocking chair. Love and peace from Australia. <laughs> so yeah. that's nice. 81? <laughs> yeah, wow. 81. Yeah. I mean, that's again, that speaks to, like, don't you forget about me interpretation. There's a lot yes. of people who kind of just use this song to, <laughs> to like, don't you forget about yourself. Uh-huh. So. Listening to this song while your dad drives you to school makes you feel like you're in the breakfast club. John Hughes is in the movie, by the way. Do you see which which uh, car oh, he drove? He's, he's, um, he's a dad from, yeah. from someone. Uh, yeah, I forgot. He picks up Brian. Oh, oh. Okay, right. It's Brian's dad, I believe. Oh. Michael Anthony Hall's dad. What was the playlist like when... You got driven to school. Oh, no. Well, here's the thing. In the 80s, this is, I think, a theme. Like, we did most things on our own, and, like, our parents Mm -hmm. weren't involved. It was walking to school, and I'd go to my friend's house, and then we'd walk and pick up another friend, and we'd walk to school. And then when I got old enough, I had my own... I eventually got a car. I 
got my grandmother's car and I, I hooked it up with a boom box because <laughs> <laughs> it didn't have a cassette player. It was just a radio and didn't have a yeah. cassette player. So I had to bring a boom box into the car and then play mixtapes and whatnot. <laughs> and then, oh God, we'd play, we'd play everything. Simple Minds, you name it. Yeah. yeah pulling it to the parking lot. That was, that was always a blast. Mm. So what do you got? What's your playlist like going to school? Ooh, um, gosh. I mean, I've said time and time again, when, when my mom, when I was in my mom's car, she had three CDs in there. It was the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, uh, J- James Taylor, Greatest Hits, and uh, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. So, <laughs> so probably bad out of hell. But Sophie, that's that's your mom's music. You never got controlled. You never rebelled, and like be like, I'm 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 the captain now. I'm the captain now. We're gonna listen to. Some, you know uh, what? We right, were we right. were getting into the iPod years then, so I could have just oh. shut everybody out. Loner in the backseat. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Man, I torture. I torture my mom. I torture my mom. Yeah. Uh, it was Blink 182 yeah. and mm-hmm. I'm of the state. Sugar Rays every morning, Limbiscuit. Oh, your poor mom and Limbiscuit, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I don't even listen to that stuff anymore, but God, I torture her. I torture her. I would, I would kick you to the curb. Yeah, you can walk. We had a long drive too. No lim- it was like no an hour drive. It was like an hour drive to school. So. Mm. Uh, okay, I got one last one. I'm 13 and just watched The Breakfast Club. I'm already in love with this song. The 80s rock. Thank you, old people, for being so good at this. <laughs> so at least they have, the, they have appreciation. Insulting, but yeah. touching. <laughs> yes. Well, I can tell you in, 19, in 1985, we had no idea. Yeah. I mean, I never would have said, oh, yeah, people will be talking about Simple Minds in yeah. 2023. And here we are. Never would have been. Bill. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the song. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You took me back. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. You have to, guys, if you're listening to this, you got to check out Deep Cut Sluts and Found. Honestly, a hidden gem because it's a hidden gem of hidden gems of hidden gems. (laughs) You guys have so many songs there. And what I love about your podcast is like, you just finished season two. It doesn't matter. It's evergreen. You can, they're there waiting for you. You guys do such a great job. And one thing I love about your podcast, I told Tom this when I when I met him. I don't think I told you about this, but I described your podcast as you go there for the music, but you stay for the friendship. You know, like mm. the banter that you guys have uh, being high school friends having this repertoire of sharing music and you're still sharing music. I, I have to say, I am envy of that because I completely opposite. When I was in high school, my friends listened to music I just found gross. Like I like reggaeton and all that stuff. And I was like, <laughs> I had no one to share the music that I was into, even film music. When I got into film scores, like I, I just felt like such an alien. Uh, and the so fact, tortured, so tortured. And the fact that you guys had like a group of five, <laughs> six people just all into it. It's and and I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's your podcast just captures that special thing you guys have. And it's so fun I to feel hear. Very you guys. lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we have a great time doing it, and it's a way for us because we're we're not. We're not all near each other anymore. So it's just a great time for us to get together. And we would do it. And I think if no one listened, but 
we're grateful that people do yeah. and they enjoy it. And thanks, Paolo. So yeah, very kind of you. Thank it's you. a it's a Gigawatts podcast too, a part of our Gigawatts family. Yeah. So check yes. it out everywhere you get your podcast. Cups, Lost and Found, and also Bill handles the social. So you can also check out Deep Cuts, Lost and Found on Twitter and Instagram. He handles the social and he's always talking about music there mm -hmm. too. Yeah, I'd love to. So reach out. Yeah. Make recommendations and <laughs> we'll talk music anytime. So as always, you kill it. Alive and kicking. You kick the hell out of this episode. <laughs> and thank you everyone for listening to catch us on at the song will go on on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. We're a bi-weekly podcast now. So we'll be back in two weeks. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening to and see you in the next one. Bye. The Sun Will Go On is written, researched, and produced by Sofia Matano and Paolo Garcia. Editing by Edgardo Albors. Additional editing by Sofia Matano and Paolo Garcia. Theme music for The Sun Will Go On is composed by William Russell. The Sun Will Go On is a Gigawatts podcast. You can find Gigawatts on Instagram and YouTube at gigawatts underscore YouTube.